You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and find Revelation 11 on page 1034. Well, we continue our study of Revelation and we are in the deep waters. These are sections of Revelation that keep preachers from preaching through this book. In fact, I was talking to someone this last week and we were reflecting on how many preachers we were aware of that preached verse by verse through the entire book and we weren't able to come up with that many. Some venture out into the seven letters of the churches and the first three chapters. Others are bold enough to enter into the throne room of chapters four and five, but the further you get in this book, the more complicated it gets. And I was sharing with one of our elders what I was discovering in chapter 11, and just sharing with him that some of the long-held truths that I had had for chapter 11 were being assaulted, and I was landing in a different place And he shared with me a pastor of his from previous years who preached through Revelation, gave this illustration that I'm going to now adopt for my own. You ever belt out a song because you love the melody and you love the sound of the artist and you might even love some phrases in it, but you belt it out not knowing exactly what the words are? You know, I did this back in 1994, (laughs) this dates me, but... That's when The Lion King came out, the original, the animated one. And I remember seeing that for the first time with, I didn't know at that time, but my wife-to-be, Sally. And I remember we were amazed at the story. We were amazed at the animation. But, but what really struck me was the music. And I remember hearing those songs for the first time and just, they were catchy and there were phrases in the lyrics that tied into the song. And I remember just belting out those songs, can you feel the love tonight? I probably won't do that in second service, but the spirit just (laughs) overcame me. And I remember any time that came up on the, on the radio, because that's where you had to listen to music back then, I would just belt it out and I would crank it up in my Honda Prelude. I know that's not a very manly car, but, but I had a Honda Prelude and I would just belt it out. And I came to the realization very quickly, I didn't know all the words. And so I, I saved up and I put a mortgage down on a CD. Those were discs that you could listen to in your car. And what they came out with is they came out with, with jackets, with, with these jackets that would actually have the lyrics in it. And so then I was able to actually memorize the lyrics, sing the lyrics with the song, and I found that actually those lyrics tied into the story so well and, and actually helped me understand the story so much better. But I think, and this is what the pastor was saying, I think we have lyrics that we think are associated with revelation. Maybe we've heard those from preachers or we've heard that from a book series or we've heard that through movies that have been made about what those directors think revelation is about. Maybe even by Revelation 11, you have some lyrics that you think are revelation because you've heard me preach them, but I would submit to you, friends, at this nearly halfway point 
But it's important for you to wrestle with the CD jacket of the text yourself. The benefit of doing that is this quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen, and that is as you engage with the text yourself. The benefit is that the lyrics that you thought were true will be solidified for you, and you'll be able to defend them from your own study of God's word rather than what a preacher or a book series says, or the needle of your understanding will move to a more biblical understanding. And are both of those benefits. And so friends, I'm, I'm preaching to you every week, not so that you will be convinced of where I land on the details, but to share with you where I've landed through my own study of the text that's further solidifying my biblical understanding of this so that you can follow that example. And my prayer is, whether you agree with the details that I unpack with you, this morning or not, we will at least be able to agree on the main point of Revelation. And that is, Christ is worthy to administrate all of the details of redemptive history so that no matter what is happening in your micro life or the macro world around us, we can conquer and endure. So here we are at chapter 11, and I got to tell you, it's a tough one. My goal is to show what I believe to be the proper lyrics, and even though you may disagree with the details, I hope we will all agree on the main point, that for this verse, these verses, it's this, despite coordinated, seemingly effective efforts of the enemy, God's people will be preserved. His plan is certain to be accomplished. May that be what we discover this morning through these 14 verses. Verse 1 John writes, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents 
because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The outline this morning is one long sentence made up of four parts that I pray, as you follow in the text, will help you better understand the main point of chapter 11 and apply it to your lives. The beginning of the sentence is this. Dwelling is preserved. Dwelling is preserved. You know, the lyrics that we have in our lives that we believe are the understanding of Revelation need to be informed by the text. But friends, not just this text. You see, even as I read this, perhaps you were engaging with the complexities of the text itself. But the Bible is never to be understood by simply recognizing and studying a text itself. It was always intended to be understood in light of the surrounding context of the additional chapters, the additional book, but also the rest of Scripture. And I hope as you've been coming to Ascend for a while, you've seen that modeled by my preaching. That we don't just look at the paragraphs and the sentences that we are studying. We look at them in light of the whole book. We look at them in light of the whole of Scripture. And when you do, especially understanding the Old Testament, I think you'll see that these first two verses remind us that the dwelling of God is preserved. It says in verse 1, John was given. This is vocabulary of a prophet. A prophet would be given something or be given instruction or be given a word from God or from an angel. That was the very nature of a prophet. And so John was given what? He was given a measuring rod like a staff. And this is a prophetic exercise. In fact, I'll do what Ben said and give you too many verses, but here we'll begin with Zechariah 2, 1 through 5. You can also write down Ezekiel 40 through 43. Both for Zechariah and for Ezekiel, they were given measuring rods. And they were actually told to measure something, specifically the temple. Verse 1 says that John was told. And you combine all of these phrases and you see that John was given the task of prophesying. In fact, even in his measurement, he is doing the activity of prophesying. Verse 1 says that he was told to rise and measure the temple of God and measure the altar and those who are there worshiping. What is this exercise? Well, certainly some of your lyrics that you bring to chapter 11 tell you that he is intended to measure the literal temple in Jerusalem. 
The challenge with that is that most likely when John wrote Revelation, the actual physical temple in Jerusalem did not exist. Most likely, Revelation was written after the Jerusalem temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So let's inform our lyrics and say that most likely, the angel was not telling John to measure the literal building in Jerusalem. Others of your lyrics might say, well, this is the temple of the millennial kingdom. This is the temple that one day will be built again in Jerusalem, and yet, Let's have the trajectory of Scripture inform us and say that that's probably not what the angel is telling you. In fact, when we get to Revelation 21 and verse 22, we see that there is no temple in the eternal state because Jesus is there. And in fact, when we follow the trajectory of the entire Bible, we realize that Jesus and Scripture are moving us away from a physical location of a temple and pointing us more toward a people who have placed their faith in Christ. Listen to this quote, and you can read it up on the screen from James Hamilton. The goal of the whole trajectory of Scripture is not a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, but a day when the whole of creation will be like the Holy of Holies in the new heavens and the new earth. Follow the trajectory of dwelling and temple. It began in the Garden of Eden, which moved to the tabernacle, which moved to a physical temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which moved to the followers of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.16. The Apostle Paul writes, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? How? How are we the temple of the living God? It's not because of the place that we worship. That's what Jesus was telling the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. We are the temple of God because his spirit dwells in us. So if we're following the trajectory of scripture, I think that we can say that the lyrics that John is giving us here are that the temple of God represents the people of God, which represents Christ's church. You know, all of our lives we have people asking us to trust them, don't we? Classmates as we are growing up, teammates as we are growing up, teachers, coaches. But the more we know someone and the greater the character of the person who is compelling you to trust them, the deeper our commitment of trust should be. In fact, listen to this. The character and relationships we have with the person inviting trust intend to serve as the substance of the claim. And so what I think John is doing by exercising a measurement of the temple is reminding us that the architect of the temple knows in great detail all of the circumstances. The architect of the temple knows in great detail his plan. And the architect of the true temple of God protects and preserves his dwelling. And so, beloved, what God is doing through the exercise of prophecy for John is reminding God's people that he cares very deeply for us, that he knows us intimately, that he knows his plan for redemption, and that he is preserving his people, his dwelling place. It is intended to elicit within us great 
confidence and courage. You know what's amazing is that God has given us 66 books to confirm this. From the Garden of Eden in Jerusalem, or in, in the, from the Garden of Eden to Jerusalem and the temple to the church and where it expresses itself all over the world, God is preserving his dwelling. He knows us intimately, and his dwelling is preserved. Number two, his dwelling is preserved so that you can witness. So that you can witness. As we arrive at verse 3, it says that God will grant authority to his two witnesses. Now, the lyrics of what you may think these two witnesses are are probably informed by various resources. Perhaps you, like me, believe that these two witnesses are individuals. Some believe that these, these are Elijah and Moses, and they get this from the Mount of Transfiguration. They get this from the vocabulary that unfolds in this text that draws from the prophetic journey of Elijah and Moses. And they've concluded, as I once did, that these witnesses are two humans who witness and then are martyred. After all, the argument has been made. The word witness is the Greek term martis. But I submit to you that my position has changed. I believe that these are not two individual human witnesses, but instead represent the church. And let me give you seven reasons for that. Number one, the prior context of chapter 10 is that John again must what? Prophesy. John's task is to prophesy, and so are the seven churches of Asia, the original audience, and so are every subsequent generation of Christians after them. The very nature that prophesy is the context tells us that the ones who are witnessing in this analogy, in these details of John's vision, are tasks that the church is supposed to fulfill. A second reason for this is the very term witness. You can write down Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said to his disciples that you will be my what? my witnesses, and you will do so in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That is the task of the church, and it continues until, Matthew 28 says, the end of the age. And so the activity that these two witnesses, I'm giving air quotes to it because I believe these are symbolic, is the very activity that the church itself is supposed to fulfill to the end of the age. A third reason I believe this is symbolic is because the very nature of revelation is to default to be symbolic. Number four, there's Old Testament imagery. And in fact, I think the team has a table that James Hamilton has for the Old Testament imagery that is found in this text. Verse 4 says, these are the two olive trees. And that phrase had occurred earlier in Zechariah chapter 4. 
the olive trees there were Joshua and Zerubbabel. Their task was to rebuild the temple, and they were fueled and empowered by the Spirit of God. And so even in that analogy, you see that the church is doing just that. We are building the temple, the symbolic temple, the temple of God, where God will dwell with his people, and his people will dwell with God. The church is rebuilding that through the empowerment of whom? The Spirit. We also see that these witnesses breathe fire out of their mouth. Elijah did that to overpower his enemies in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Verse 6 says that they have the power to declare to the sky that no rain may fall, and Elijah did that back in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Verse 6, that they have the power to turn water into blood. Moses did that with Pharaoh in Exodus 7, 14 through 25. And I think what John is doing is using these Old Testament references that back then were literal events to show the authority of God to show that symbolically the church is supposed to do just that. But what's also interesting is that the, the purpose of the prophetic activities of Elijah and Moses and Joshua and Zerubbabel were to produce repentance and obedience in the hearers. Isn't that interesting? The whole point of fire coming down from Elijah, the whole point of turning water into blood, the whole point in rebuilding the temple, the whole point of shutting the sky so that no rain would come was so that people would repent and obey. And is that not the point of the church and scripture? In fact, back in chapter 10, remember, the angel told John that he would eat the scroll, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it would be both sweet and what? Bitter. Bitterness is intended to convict. Sweet is intended to move to repentance and transformation. And so I think this is another example of how these witnesses are actually representing the church. Here's the sixth reason, the grammar You know, the English gives us everything that we need to be able to understand Scripture. But when you study the original languages, it adds even more color and more imagery and more resolution. And what we see in verse 8, even though here it says that their bodies were left on the street, in the Greek, the word body is singular. So it says the body of them. One commentator says this is the unity of corporate. In other words, I think John is using grammar to show that these two individuals actually represent one entity. Another example, man, I think I've lost my numbering here, but another example is Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6. Where Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6 says that on the basis of two or more witnesses, legality is established. And maybe this is seven, maybe it's eight. But I think this is the most important one. Verse 4 says that these two are the lampstands. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 20, John has already referenced lampstands. And the lampstands represent what? The church. 
So whether these are seven or eight, I'll hopefully shore this up before second service. I think these are significant evidences that at least there's some validity to the lyrics that I've landed on, that these are not two human individuals. These are representing the church. But I think the point in this, just like prophecy, is that all of this is not intended to cause us to focus on who are these two, but instead, what are they doing? I think it's so easy for us in the book of Revelation to want to invest in the details instead of understanding the purpose of prophecy in the Bible, which is to teach truth. And the point of these details in chapter 11 is not to focus on who are these people, who are these witnesses, but what are we supposed to do, and what we are supposed to do is witness the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are we supposed to do? What are these two individuals, if you believe that's who they are, supposed to do? The vision of Ascend Church, and here's what it is. To know Christ, to be known by him, and to make him known. Friends, when you come to Ascend Church, that is our vision. Now, now we carry out our mission by seeing lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. But the vision of Ascend Church is to know Christ, to be known by him, and to make him known to the community and the nations. That's it. That's what these witnesses are supposed to do. That's what the church is supposed to do. And so here's what you and I are to do by application of this very point, this quote. Let's contribute, contribute to the legal testimony of the character of God and the truth of the gospel. That's it. As you go out today, the, the way that you speak, the way that you live, if you go to a restaurant, our task is intended to contribute to the legality of the claim that Christ is God that the gospel is true hope, that the kingdom is our true citizenship. We do that by the way we live, the way we speak, and the way we think. And chapter 11 is reminding us this, that the dwelling is preserved so that you can witness, and then number three, knowing you will face persecution. I haven't addressed the times yet, have I? Verse 2 says that they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Verse 3 says the two witnesses will be granted authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. Now the lyrics that some of you might have for these particular designations of times are that these are literal calendar events, literal calendar months, literal calendar years and dates. Three and a half years. The challenge with that is that not every month has 30 days. The challenge with that is that when you look at prophecy, including the Old Testament, Usually, if not always, days are intended to be symbolic. Vern Proithris gives us a good summary of what these representations of time designate. He says this, it designates a persecution of limited length. 
I think that's the point of John saying 1,260 days, the point of him saying 42 months, the point of him in the next chapter saying time, times, and half a time is to show that there is a prescribed duration of persecution. It's not exactly short. Three and a half years can seem like a long time and all parents of young people say, amen. But I think what John is showing is a twofold purpose. Number one, it is a long time, but it is controlled and orchestrated by God. But I think he's also drawing from Old Testament symbolism. You can write down this, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, Elijah told Ahab that the rain would not fall for how long? Three and a half years. Moses, as he unpacks all of the encampments of the journey from Egypt to the promised land, provides 42 encampments in Numbers 33, 5 through 49. And then Daniel, and Daniel 7, 25, and Daniel 9, 27, describes times, time, times, and half a times in his 70th week, which the 70 weeks are said to be seven years. I don't have time to unpack this, but where I've landed on the 70th week of Daniel is that it's symbolic and that it represents the amount of time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. We are in the 70th week of Daniel. It began when Jesus resurrected from the grave and it continues on today. I don't think Daniel's point was to be able to give us a formula so that we could look at the calendar and know exactly the day when Jesus would return, exactly when the three and a half point was. In fact, I don't think he's even saying three and a half exact years. I think what he's showing is that seven is the number of completion and that God is going to cut short complete persecution. He's going to cut short the ability that the enemy has to actually destroy God's people. He's going to cut it short sovereignly and purposefully. But there is going to be persecution. And that's what I think these verses reveal. It's interesting, the progression. Verse 2 says that John is not to measure the outer courts. There's a lot of opinions on what the outer courts are. I'll just save you time and tell you that I believe it's representative of the world system. That in this symbolic representation of the temple, it says that the outer courts have been given over to the nations. There is somebody who oversees the nations during this 70th week of Daniel, and Paul reveals who that is in Ephesians 2. In fact, Ben read it just earlier. There is a prince of the power of the air. He is at work in the sons of disobedience, and while he is not sovereign, Satan is the prince of the 70th week of Daniel, and he is using it to trample the holy city. That's what verse 2 says. Do you see it in the text? But the holy city is not referring to Jerusalem in Israel in the Middle East. 
The holy city is the people of God. The holy city is the church. That's what the New Testament has been teaching us. In fact, that's what Paul will do in Galatians chapter 4, verses 25 through 26, to show that God's attention has moved from the physical city in Jerusalem to the spiritual city, which is the church, which will one day be culminated in the new Jerusalem, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Satan and the forces of evil intend to trample God's people, and they've been doing this for generations, haven't they? Look at verse 7. Coming out of the bottomless pit is the beast. Now, the beast, I think, ties back to Daniel 7, verse 7. Four beasts Daniel saw in his vision, which are similar to what John will unpack in the book of Revelation. The fourth beast, though, says that it's unlike any previous beast. And I think what Daniel is saying is the same thing John is capitalizing on, and that is the beast is not an actual nation. It's now the entire world system under the oversight of the serpent. What's interesting is the parallels between what the beast is doing against God's people and what the beast tried to do with Christ. In fact, look at the symbolism here. Verse 7, when they, the witnesses, have finished their testimony, when their testimony is complete, when no more repentance is available, it says that the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. That was done to Jesus, wasn't it? In fact, there's even a tie-in here to Jerusalem and that in the physical location of Jerusalem, their Lord was crucified. But then see what John does is he's showing that the physical location of Jerusalem is actually symbolic for all of the generations that have assembled themselves, as Psalm 2 says, against the Lord, against his anointed, and against his people. Places like Sodom, a place that decided that how they wanted to live, how they wanted to define marriage, how they wanted to fill their sexual desires, how they wanted to define gender and sexuality would be supreme to what God says that it is. Sound familiar? The the nation of Egypt, the literal place, became the enemies of God's people, desiring to enslave them, desiring to control them. That's what Jerusalem did to Christ. And that's what the beast and the world system continues to try to do to the church itself. It says that there will be a point when the beast will appear to be successful. The witnesses will be killed. They will appear to be conquered. The lyrics I thought that this was describing were that these two human individuals would have their bodies laying out in the streets of Jerusalem and that because of technology today and the ability to see things across the world, the world would see their dead bodies. But again, I don't think that's what this is saying. I think what this is saying is that there is a point in the future, and and I think we can see the escalation of that, where the entire world will organize and mobilize to attack the church, and there will come a point when it appears that they were successful. But what does it say in the text? Look at it. Three and a half what? Days. 
Now, is the point of John to say that these are three and a half literal 24-hour days? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is contrasting 1,260 days with three and a half. Contrasting 42 months with three and a half days. And and when you do that, you realize that three and a half days are a lot shorter than 1,260 months, 42, 1,260 days, 42 months. It's a lot shorter. It will appear that they are dead and conquered, but God. And I think the parallels are once again drawn to Christ himself. In fact, the text actually says that. Just like the Lord was crucified, so will the two witnesses. But, verse 11, after three and a half days, similar to Christ, Christ was three days, the breath of God, breath of life from God entered them. Friends, the beauty of this is that we are reminded that as we look around, the world will not conquer us. It'll appear that way. It appears that way right now a little bit, doesn't it? Look at the legislation that's taking place. Look at places that were traditionally Christian, places that were the birthplace of the Reformation. Look at how the world is saying the exact opposite of what God's word says. And when someone stands up to courageously and uncompromisingly declare the word of God, they're attacked. They're trampled. And friends, we we love stories where it looks like all hope is lost, don't we? But there's still hope. It sure appears that there is no hope. In fact, the text says they... Witnesses are conquered. It's the same word that we've been seeing throughout Revelation of what God's people are supposed to do. It says in verse 8, their dead corpses will remain. The world will mock them. Verse 9, they will celebrate the demise of the church. And it reminds us, beloved, that the Christian life is intended to be a life of persecution and suffering. Now, we don't have to go seek for it. But if we live uncompromisingly for the glory of Christ, we will be persecuted. See, what I think John is doing and Christ is imploring him to do is give us encouragement so that when we see all of the posts on social media of people outside of state capitals that are celebrating the defeat of anti-abortion laws, when we see people that are celebrating outside of state capitals the affirmation by our federal government that marriage can exist between two from the same sex, when we see this on entertainment, when we see this all throughout the world, we, we have now lenses to understand what's going on. This is all part of God's plan. He's preserving his dwelling so that we can be witnesses because you and I both know There will be persecution, number four, but the king and his people win. The king and his people win. Again, your lyrics from this chapter might be that these two witnesses are dead in the streets and that this is televised for three and a half days and then they come to life. I just followed the progression of chapter 11, and I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's actually flowing out of John 16. Remember John 16 when Jesus said to his disciples, do not be surprised when the world hates you. 
The world hated me first. Do not be surprised when the world treats you the way it does because look at how they treated Christ. And I think this chapter provides enough symbolism to show Old Testament imagery but also the imagery of Christ to encourage us that Christ and his people win. Verse 11, after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. That is a position of authority. Remember back in chapter four, there was one who entered into the throne room that looked like a crucified lamb, but it stood. Standing, especially when you've been dead, is a posture of authority. It's a posture of victory. They're following the example of Christ. Great fear fall on those who saw him, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up in heaven in a cloud. I think this is alluding to 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And with a shout, with a trumpet, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. In the clouds they will return. I don't think that's talking about a rapture. Please don't leave the church because we may disagree. I think what that's showing is Roman imagery of victory. That we will be caught up with the Lord and he will return and declare his victory over creation and set up his kingdom. He affirms the faithful witness of the church. He affirms the completion of their task in Acts 1.8 and Matthew 28. The enemies watch, and at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. I don't think this is literally 10%. It says 7,000 people were killed. I don't think this is literally 7,000 to the number of people. I think this is alluding to Old Testament imagery. Isn't it interesting that back in 1 Kings chapter 19, there were 7,000 faithful in the remnant with Elijah? One commentator believes that this is a exchange in kind. Just as there were 7,000 preserved, there will be 7,000 killed, not literally, but the, the contrast between the preserved people of God and the judged people of, here is what it says in the text, those who dwell on the earth. It says that they will be terrified and give glory to the God of heaven and We can debate whether or not that's true conversion. I don't think it is. You can write down Daniel 4, verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar actually demonstrates this same vocabulary. He had fear and glorified the God of heaven, but evidence shows that Nebuchadnezzar was not converted. So it leaves us with this question as we complete the second woe. Where are you in all of this? Have you trusted in the Christ who is worthy to administrate the details of redemptive history? Are you a part of his church, declaring boldly, courageously, lovingly the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you being faithful despite persecution, or are you folding under persecution? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is intended to elicit within us hope. Last week we saw what we needed. This week we realize what we have is what we need to conquer and endure. 
And so friend, where, where are you in this? Don't, don't get bogged down with the details. Maybe you still are unconvinced by where I'm landing and you still believe these are two individuals. That, that's fine. That's, we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you believe it's a literal temple and that it will be a literal temple in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. That, that's fine. Let's not divide over that. But let's agree that the purpose of this section of chapter 11 is to remind us that God will preserve his dwelling so that you and I can witness knowing we will be persecuted, but the king and his people will win. Are you his people? You see, what's required for you to be able to answer that with a resounding yes is that you must admit that you are a sinner. Not that you have sinned, but that intrinsically and by your very nature, you are a sinner, therefore unable to save yourself. Do you admit that? If you do, then the next step is to believe. Believe. Believe in your mind. Believe in your heart. Believe by faith that Christ's completed work is enough for your salvation. That his life, that his atoning death on the cross, that his victorious resurrection from the grave is enough. And then that you see that you confess your sins and commit your life to King Jesus. A, B, C. Friend, if you have not responded to that gospel message, please do that today. If you want to know more about it, there will be members of our prayer team on the ends of our platform that would love to talk with you after the service. Friend, if, if you have been transformed by this ABC, then are you fulfilling your witness as the church? Are you declaring it to your friends and families? Are you declaring it to your classmates by the way that you live, by the way that you speak? Are you declaring it on social media? Will you witness when you go to your restaurants today? Are you witnessing? When you do, know that you will be persecuted. But the architect of the temple preserves you. He protects you. He knows you. And while that protection may not mean that you don't experience persecution, while that protection may mean that you are actually killed in this life, you will be brought into his eternal dwelling. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, take this challenging chapter. Find application in your life. And may we become more bold to declare the hope and the help that is found in Jesus Christ in our present day. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the words that John chose to describe what he saw. I thank you for the way he tied them back to the Old Testament so you can, we can see they are not given in a vacuum. I thank you for the way he even follows the pattern of Christ himself so that we can find encouragement and courage in Christ. Father, would you take these details and move us to a place where we can courageously and confidently conquer and endure for the glory of Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.